I'm grateful for the opportunity and the privilege just to continue our worship today through preaching God's Word. Over the last four years, we have been incredibly blessed to sit under the leadership of the elders and the staff. But we've also been incredibly blessed to sit next to you and alongside you, the body of North Wake. About seven weeks left until we move to Tampa. This is a bittersweet season for us. It's bitter because our lives are being uprooted from the body in which they've become so deeply connected with over these past four years. But it's oh so sweet because there are literally hundreds of thousands in the city of Tampa and millions in the Tampa-St. Pete area who have yet to bow their knee in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and who've never even had the opportunity to experience the transforming power of the gospel lived out in biblical community. And church, that's our hope. That's our hope for the city of Tampa. And when I met with Larry to discuss our passage today in this sermon, uh, he encouraged me to challenge the body, and so I do this unashamedly. North Wake, why would the Lord not send you to Tampa to be a part of seeing his name exalted and his church established? And if not Tampa, why not D.C.? You see, if we're going to be a congregation who's resolved to join God on his mission, there shouldn't be a member, there shouldn't be a family in our congregation whose lives aren't laid before the Lord and who wouldn't say with Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. And I encourage you, North Wake, because there are several families in this body who are praying about whether or not to go. And over the next few months, families will be taking trips. And so I just encourage you as you catch wind of these families to pray with them, pray for them. It is our hope that we would be able to display God's glory by being a gospel-centered community that works for the gospel renewal of the city and ultimately for the nations. And so to our elders and staff, thank you. Thank you for the way that you faithfully and humbly served and led us. And to the body of North Wake, thank you. Thank you for the way that you have pushed us to be more like Christ ever before in our lives. We are better today because of both of those evidences of graces in our lives. This week, we're going to turn our attention back to the Sermon on the Mount. And as we continue to explore what it means for us as a church and what it means for us as individuals to join God on his mission, we must heed the words of Christ. And that is very Captain Obvious this morning. Yes, we must do what Christ says. But the reason we must heed the words of Christ is because joining God on his mission, it doesn't begin by taking your family and uprooting your life and moving to Tampa. And it doesn't begin with moving to Africa or to D.C. or anywhere else. But it begins when you heed his words and your life and your character and your heart begins to be more like his. And the Sermon on the Mount does exactly this. It exposes the kind of heart and the kind of character and the kind of life that is needed to join God on his mission. And so before we get started looking at the text today, I'd like to pray 
that that type of transformation would happen. I'd like to pray that as we hear God's word, that we would heed it. And that because of that, our lives, our characters, and our hearts would begin to look a whole lot more like Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, we recognize that it's on the basis of the work of Christ that we're able to approach you this morning. And for that, we say thank you. That's the foundation that anything that we will ever do in this life is is to be laid upon. But God, as we approach your word today, I pray that you would give us grace. God, give me grace to teach it rightly. Give all of us grace to apply it. God, I pray that we would hear uh, your teaching, we would hear your word, and we would be quick to apply. So God, we do pray that because of what we hear today, our lives would look drastically different as we walk out of these doors. So God, begin to mold our character, begin to mold our hearts, and begin to mold our lives to look more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you will, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be beginning in verse 21, but in order to best understand our passage today, it would serve us well to just remind ourselves of some things that Larry shared with us last week. In verse 17, we see that Jesus comes and he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so this has to be our framework because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear six passages in which Jesus starts out his teaching this way. You have heard it said this, but now I say to you this. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. And we can all be certain in here this morning that what Jesus isn't doing is he isn't changing or adding to anything that the Old Testament said. He's not, he he didn't come to abolish it, but he's coming to show that it pointed to him. And so rather than changing what the Old Testament said, what Jesus is doing in this passage is that he is, he is wanting to address the faulty interpretation and the faulty understanding of this, of this law. You see, in the Old Testament, many promises were made. And then you flip to the New Testament, and we see that they were fulfilled in Christ. And North Wake, uh, with our music team and Daniel, they've even written a song along these lines. And we love to sing it around uh, this place. And it says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes what? Yeah. They are yes in Christ. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's saying, I'm not doing away with this law. But I'm going to show you clearly how this law is pointing to me and how I fulfill this law. And so as you read your Bibles, you can have certainty and you can have confidence that what you're reading is indeed the Word of God. Because Jesus upholds its reliability and its truthfulness. And So I want to make sure that as we approach our text, we're not thinking that Jesus is trying to change anything that the law of the prophets has said. Rather, what he's trying to change is the understanding of the law. He goes on in verse 20 to say, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is calling his followers to a different kind of righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. It would serve us well this morning to be reminded of the kind of righteousness of the the Pharisees and of the scribes. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is he's over the Pharisees and the scribes' righteousness. And what he does in in this chapter is he exposes this veneer in their lives known as righteousness. 
And he says that in spite of their outward conformity to the law, their hearts are corrupt and impure. And we read in Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, Jesus puts it this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I think a great way to start this morning would be a point of application. Hey church, what is the flavor of your righteousness? Is it like that of the Pharisees? To where you're doing everything you can to make sure that you look good and to make sure you're upholding the law to the best of your might, but you know on the inside you're rotten and you're impure. Or is it the flavor of that which, which Jesus is getting after? A righteousness which works from the inside out, which changes the motivations of the heart. And so on the hills of these reminders, uh, we come to our passage today. And we read beginning in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And, everyone, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you were with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison." And you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And so beginning in verse 21, Jesus starts out and he says, You have heard that the ancients were told. And again, what he's contesting is is the traditional and the accepted understanding of of this passage. And and this law, it's derived from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 says, You shall not murder. Leviticus 24, 17 says, If man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Numbers 35, 31 says the same thing. Did you hear it? Did you guys hear it? Because I just heard the collective sigh of relief from the congregation. And it went something like, Oh, well, maybe the sermon's not going to be so bad today. It's preacher boys talking about murder. And guess what? I've never murdered anybody. And uh, sermons are always better when they're for the other guy. Well, stay with me because Jesus has something to say for you as well this morning. In 1999, a study was done by Georgetown University and, uh, wow, its findings were spectacular to say the least. And this is what they found. 79% of Americans are missing the point. Period. 79% of Americans missed the point. Point of what? Well, the point of everything in regard to politics, consumerism, taxes, entertainment, fashion, and yes, even professional wrestling. And I did not think it was possible for anyone to miss the point of professional wrestling, but 79% of Americans do. This survey questioned nearly 8,000 Americans on a variety of topics, and this is how they measured 
their findings. Several overweight people that were questioned confessed to eating bag after bag of reduced fat ruffles every day. Every day. And so they missed the point on the reduced fat chip. Numerous, uh, numerous business owners used recycled paper checks to pay for the gas to go in their massive SUVs. So again, missing the point of being environmentally friendly with a check and maybe a not-so-environmentally friendly vehicle. It keeps going. It gets better or worse, whichever way you're looking at it. Many people complained of movies that insulted their intelligence, and they called for more sophisticated family movies. And yet, out of all of these surveyed, 85% of them had seen Adam Sandler's movie Big Daddy, and 10% had seen the critically acclaimed family-friendly movie The Iron Giant. I hadn't seen it either. Obviously, these people missed the point because the majority of them are paying for that which they're complaining about. Anyway, the, the, the research keeps going. And one guy, a, an auto mechanic in West Virginia, said this. If I want to miss the point, then that's my own business. <laughs> if, if I want to complain about having to pay taxes while at the same time demanding extra police protection in my neighborhood, then that's okay. That's my right as an American. 79% of Americans miss the point. That means 21% of Americans have a clue. And to be quite honest with you, I don't have a clue if this is even a legit survey. It was on the internet, so I'm guessing it was. <laughs> but 79% of Americans missed the point. I wonder what that percentage would be of the people in the church. I wonder how many people in the church missed the point. And not of things like fashion and politics and professional wrestling. But I wonder how many of us in the church missed the point of the law. See, Jesus is going to continue. He's going to say that, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And so do you see what's just happened? In verse 21, Jesus begins and he, he puts the spotlight on what everyone else is looking at. And they're looking at that outward act of murder. And Jesus takes the spotlight and he says, let's put it on your heart. And now, who's not guilty of murder? I read this and my first reaction is, oh my. That means this law is a whole lot more spiritual and heart searching than what these Jews supposed. And I even say, oh my, because that means that this law is a whole lot more spiritual and heart-searching than maybe even many of us are supposing. And so here it is before us. The divine intent behind this prohibition against murder doesn't rest solely on the outward act, but it rests at the root of the anger that's lying within our hearts. Pastor theologian J.C. Ryle will say this, we may be perfectly innocent of ever taking life and yet guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. We may be perfectly innocent of ever taking life 
but yet guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible has a lot to say about our anger and about the way that what comes out of our mouth is really tied into what's going into our heart or what's going on in our hearts. And we see in Proverbs 29, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. In Ephesians, Paul tells us to put all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, put it away from you along with all malice. And we see in James... James sums it up and he says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The Bible goes on and James continues and he says, With it, talking about our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Jesus will say, You brood of vipers. Speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And I think in John's epistle, he he captures what Jesus is after here. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's interesting to note what Jesus does in the scope of this passage. And he begins by saying, if you, have, if you are angry with your brother, then you're guilty. And this idea of being angry, it, it conjures up uh, these deep-seated feelings that are aroused by injustice and wrong. And Jesus said, if you have that in your heart, you're guilty. But then he goes on to say that if you've ever called your brother, you good for nothing. Some of your translations will say raka. Others will say if you've ever insulted a brother. And the idea here is that you're expressing contempt on one's mind, their mental ability. It's like calling someone stupid, or you moron, or you idiot, or you imbecile. If you've ever done that, not only if you've ever, not only if you've ever said it, but if you've ever thought, if it's ever been stirring in your heart, you're guilty. But he goes on to say, if you've ever said, you fool. And the idea here is that this word is expressing contempt for one's character. For one's moral integrity and for one's heart. If you've ever done that, if you've ever thought that, you're guilty of breaking this law. You see, each of these are an attack on the truth that all of life is made in the image of God. And when we attack another, that's a cheap shot at the maker. Uh, I don't want you to think as you're reading this that there's a progression from like being angry to calling someone a fool, that there's a progression of like worst to worst or bad to worst, uh, nor even with a punishment. Because what Jesus is doing is he's just laying out the accepted systems of justice. And he wants to make clear that what's feared is the judgment that's going to be divine. Because this is going to be a judgment that not, not, a, not only assesses the outward act, but it assesses the heart. And there's not a court that can find you guilty for anger in your heart. But there is a judge who can, and rest assured that he will. So church, when did we last think biblically about the anger that's sitting in your heart? When did we last think biblically about the insults that we so often think And about the contempt that we have for other people. And about the gossip that's rolling off of our lips. It's high time that we think biblically about these things. And church, who among us isn't guilty of breaking this law? 
Let's look past this outward act of murder and let's look at, at the issue of the heart and the anger that's in the heart. And if you find anger there, church, we've got to look at our hands. And if they're anything like mine, the blood of other people are on them because we're guilty of murder. And so maybe you're thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now you're talking about, I can't get angry and I can't call anyone a fool, but Jesus did. So did Jesus just break his own law? Well, you're right. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus goes in and he starts overturning the tables in in the temple and he doesn't do it nicely. (laughs) He's angry. And then in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus goes into the synagogue and he's getting ready to heal the man who's crippled. And he notices that all the Pharisees and the scribes, they're looking and they're waiting to see if he's going to break the law. And he gets angry because they're missing it. And even in Matthew chapter 23, in speaking to the, the Pharisees and the scribes, he calls them fools. But let's get one thing straight. In each of these instances, Jesus doesn't transgress the law. His anger burns at sin and injustice, while the vast majority of our anger burns at injustice done to us. And injustice done against our pride and against our honor. You see, there is, a, there is such a thing as righteous anger. And I pray that that is what we would develop. And Jesus displays it perfectly because the Bible said that he was slow to anger and in all of his anger, you see grief over sin. Jesus is grieving over sin. But most telling is that his anger was never a result of personal mistreatment. Never. Because if you'll remember with me, Jesus was arrested. Jesus was mocked. And Jesus was spit upon. And he was beaten and he was crucified. And the Bible says that he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Not saying a word except to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter will go on to tell us that when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Church, we've got to understand that obeying this law is secondarily about our outward act. I don't want to take anything away from that. That is definitely important, but it's secondary. And we obey this law primarily from our hearts. And I hope you catch the weightiness of our text today. Because what Jesus is saying is that if you've ever had unrighteous anger, if you've ever insulted someone else, if you've ever had contempt in your heart for another person, you are guilty. You are guilty before a holy God and you are deserving of his wrath. You are deserving of condemnation. And we're not even talking about how hard it is to actually do it outwardly. We're talking about the inward struggle. Our hearts condemn us before God. The church, we don't have to continue. The good news today is that God, through Jesus Christ, has made a provision for us. There is an answer to this predicament that we're in. And since the emphasis of this commandment now becomes a matter of the heart, Jesus says that we ought to do everything we can as quickly as we can to make matters right. He continues. In in verses 23 and 24, 
Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First to be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. The context here is it's this idea of temple worship and it's involving another brother. And it's interesting to note, Jesus doesn't say, if you remember that you have something against your brother, because he's already addressed that in verse 22. If you're angry in your heart with the brother, you're guilty. But what the text does say is that if you remember that someone has something against you, you're to go. You're not to wait on them. You're not to pray about it. You're to go. Go and be reconciled. And so Jesus is insisting here that it's far more important for us to be reconciled to our brother than to discharge religious duty. Because when we discharge religious duty, it becomes a sham and a mockery to our great God because we're allowing murder to continue in our hearts or in the heart of another. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is don't worship God with a murderous heart. Offering God a gift, it never camouflages the wrong. And yet, sadly today, we love to substitute religious ceremony for purity of heart and integrity. We love to substitute religious ceremony for purity of heart. But church, I pray that we would listen to what Jesus is saying. He's having none of it. And so two questions arise at this point. Number one is, since there is no need for temple worship because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all, and since now all of life is to be lived as worship, when is it ever okay for us to continue on in life knowing that someone has something against us? It's never okay. It is never okay for us to keep going on with life as we know it, knowing that there are relationships in our lives that need to be reconciled. And so question number two, who do you need to go to today? Who do you need to go to right now? You know, I think at this point, it's like the perfect place to put this warm, fuzzy story about how I did this well sometime in the past. Uh, I've been a believer for 12 years. And this week as I was studying this and just thinking about this, um, there have been a lot of times in my life where there's been anger or contempt in my heart. But I, don't, I couldn't come up with very many times in which I went and reconciled that. Church, we must heed the words of Christ. If we're going to join God on his mission, we've got to see it's about more than outward conformity to the law. It's about what's happening in our hearts. Make no bones about it. If there is a relationship right now in your life that is unreconciled, it's on you to go and be reconciled. Jesus continues Verse 25, he says, make friends quickly with, with your opponent at law while you were with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. 
And the idea here, the context here, is two people who are going to court. And where the first context uh, involved a brother, this one is involving an opponent. And Jesus here is teaching that it is wise for us to settle our differences outside of court, to do it quickly, because once in court, the consequences can be disastrous. And we see this in Romans chapter 12, as Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so based on the scope of this passage we've just looked at, whether it's your brother or whether whether it's your opponent, there really ought not be any relationship you can think of right now that is unreconciled. And if there is murder, if there is anger in your heart, if there is contempt in your heart, if you're speaking it to other people about other people, understand you're guilty of murder. And after looking at this today, I hope that we're able to see the complete picture of what Jesus is after. You see, the person who follows Jesus' teaching, that person's gentle. The person who follows Jesus' teaching, that person is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And the person who's following Jesus' teaching, that person is merciful. And they're pure in heart. And they're peacemakers. And the person who's following Jesus' teaching... Much like the salt that's put in the food to preserve it, so they too are preserving the relationships in this world. Those that follow Jesus' teaching, much like the, the light does to the darkness, so they too are being light and dispelling the darkness in their heart that comes in the form of anger, but also in the hearts of others. It comes in the form of anger. And so we've just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount thus far. It really isn't so much about this outward conformity to the law. Again, that is important. But Jesus is intimately concerned with the condition of our hearts. And that's the intent behind this. Uh, Jesus' words here, they ought to cause each one of us to reflect deeply on the condition of our hearts. uh, Especially in regards to anger. And pastor theologian J.C. Ryle has given three comments in closing about what this teaching ought to lead us to see. And I want to share these with us. First, he says, our passage today, it ought to teach us something about the holiness of God. Our passage today ought to teach us something about the holiness of God. You see, he is most pure. And he is most perfect. And he sees where man's eyes cannot see. He knows the inward motivation. And although he is concerned about the outward act, and that means a lot to him, he is most concerned, and he is intimately concerned about what's going on under that outward act in your heart. And oh, church, if we would think on this more often, if we would think of Jesus being as holy as he is, anger and murder and pride would have less and less place in our heart. Because we would be seeing Jesus for who he is. And we would understand that he's looking and he's judging our hearts. I don't know about you, but I would be freed up from trying so much to please out here. If I thought more rightly about how holy God was, I would spend my energies here. 
So not only ought this passage teach us about the holiness of God, but it ought teach us about man's ignorance in spiritual things. This ought to teach us about man's ignorance in spiritual things. You see, there are a sea of professing believers who know the letter of the law all too well, but yet they are missing the intent of the law. There are many, there are many satisfied believers who are content with their little bit of religion, but yet they are missing the heart-shaping nature of the law. You know, and sadly, I like to think that all of that is out there. That all of the people who just don't get the intent of the law, it's all out there and it's all in other congregations, but sadly, it's, it's in here as well. Because if you're like me, you would say, I would never in the world think of murdering someone. I, that, seriously, that thought is so far away from me. I would never murder someone. What about the anger that's in your heart right now that's been there for a couple of days? What about the anger that's been in your heart for a couple of weeks? What about that resentment and that grudge and that contempt you're feeling towards somebody else that's been there for a couple of months? And dare I even say that we've allowed it to fester there for years. This really ought to show us our ignorance in spiritual things. If we think that this commandment of murder is only about the outward act, then we've missed it. We've missed it. And lastly, this teaching, this passage ought to teach us something of our need for Jesus' atoning blood to save us. This passage ought to teach us something of our need of Jesus' atoning blood to save us. So let's let's just really be honest here. Who could ever stand before God and plead not guilty to to this charge of murder? None of us. In short, this teaching, it, it exceeds our capacity. And church, without a mighty mediator, every one of us is deserving of condemnation, is deserving of the wrath of God because our hearts have condemned us. But oh, there is good news today. The good news is that Jesus who gives us this teaching is also the Jesus who a couple of verses previous would say, I bless the poor in spirit, those who know they can't obey. And the Jesus who gives us this teaching is also the Jesus who would give his life as a ransom for those who would not obey. Church, the gospel announces that our creator has become our redeemer. Because of the sinless life of Christ, because he was our representative substitute on the cross, because he bore bore all of my sins, he bore all of your sins. Because he became the object of the wrath of God, and church, let's make no mistake about it, that was due us. And because he rose three days later, the same Jesus who would give this almost seemingly impossible command gives us the very way in which we can begin to obey. He gives us grace. He gives us his spirit. 
And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the truth of the scripture is that you are condemned and deserving of the wrath of God. Unless you repent and place your faith into the person and the work of Christ. And for those of us who have been saved from our sin, do you think about this enough? Is this your hope for the murder that's in your heart? Church, it is the only hope for the likes of us. So how do you need to respond today? Go and be reconciled. Repent and confess of the murder that is in your heart. It does not belong there if you are a child of God. And church, may we unceasingly give thanks to our Redeemer. That's our hope. I'm going to pray. We'll have elders and staff down front. If you need to come and and talk to someone, uh, whatever obedience looks like, it would be a great, great mistake to walk out the doors with murder in our hearts. And so I pray that we would be obedient. Let's pray.